the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Happy January 21st, 2021. A tale of two inaugurations. At least that's how the media tried to portray yesterday versus four years ago. If you Google Trump's inauguration speech, the first thing you'll notice is it's actually hard to find. The official White House page that housed it, housed it until yesterday, like the 1776 report, has taken it down. Another memory hole. The second thing to notice is how many headlines there were about Trump's speech calling it angry and divisive. Scorched earth was a popular phrase being used to describe it. The third thing to note is how many stories there are today comparing it to the soothing and upbeat Joe Biden inauguration speech that was delivered yesterday. The Trump speech was often derided for speaking of American carnage. It's true. Donald Trump did use that phrase in his inauguration speech. Here's how. He said, quote, at the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their family and good jobs for themselves. These are these are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories, scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We are one nation, and that pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams, and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home, and one glorious destiny, close quote. That's the context in which the phrase American carnage was used. Now I ask, what the heck is so bad about that? And may I note, is that not a call to unity as well? One nation, their pain, our pain, their dreams, our dreams, their success, our success, one heart, One home, one glorious destiny. Something Joe Biden is getting credit for mentioning unity is his desire. But show us the example of its molding. We are one nation. Their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams. We share one heart and home and destiny. How is that any less good than, quote, history, faith, and reason show the way to unity? Which is how Joe Biden put it. Well, one understands the problems, the real problems facing America. The other is pablum, relevant to nothing. There is or was one big difference between the two inaugurals that I think worth mentioning, as no media seemed to. One actually was attended by massive violence, and the other was not. The first one, Trump's, actually witnessed an extremely violent set of riots and protests. You know, the inaugural the media did not warn would have a violent reaction because Democrats are, of course, peaceful. 
The inaugural, the entire media said, would be attended by violence, requiring a military division and lockdowns because Republican opposition would be violent, had no violence. None. In fact, it was not sufficient for the media to presage violence against the Biden inauguration in just D.C. The stories were that there would be violence at state houses around the country, and they were shut down, too. Guess what? Nothing. None. Just to remind, so anyone who thinks I'm making this up, here's Reuters from four years ago. Quote, black-clad activists among hundreds of demonstrators protesting Donald Trump's swearing-in on Friday clashed with police a few blocks from the White House in an outburst of violence rare for an inauguration. 217 were arrested. In the violence, throngs of activists in black clothes and masks threw rocks and bottles at officers wearing riot gear who responded with volleys of tear gas and stun grenades As helicopters hovered low overhead, at one flashpoint, a protester hurled an object through the passenger window of a police van, which sped away in reverse as demonstrators cheered. Earlier activists used chunks of pavement and baseball bats to shatter the windows of a Bank of America branch and a McDonald's outlet, all symbols of American capitalism. Six police officers were injured. Close quote. That was four years ago. The Biden inauguration? Nothing. Zip. Sea of tranquility. Now, some may say, well, yes, that's what happens when you deploy 25,000 troops to ensure peace. Not so fast. Google that one as well. Insert no credible threat and Biden inauguration into your search, and somehow you will see story after story from D.C. to Los Angeles, from West Virginia to Wisconsin, that the FBI and Homeland Security offices had no Credible threats of violence against the Biden inauguration. Now they tell us. It was clearly all for show. But CNN and MSNBC didn't report any of that. They wanted a specter and fear of violence to surround the Biden inauguration to portray the right or Republicans as violent and disruptive. For perspective, here's what CNN will not tell you. More people were arrested rioting in D.C. during the Trump inauguration than were for the January 6th insurrection. Close quote. Insurrection in quotes. Myths. That's what we operate under. We're violent. They are not. We require lectures on unity. They do not. Their their speeches are full of dulcet peace. Ours are fire and brimstone, scorched earth. They're American. We are not. So, yes, Donald Trump, in his scorched earth speech, did speak of crime and drug abuse and unemployment. Sure he did. And then about how that is not any American's dream. When you talk about equity and reaching previously unreached portions, populations, parts of America, as Biden is today, how is that any different than what Donald Trump was talking about, those who were not realizing the American dream four years ago? But Biden is tranquil, uniting, and refreshing. Biden. What did he speak of so specifically? Growing inequity is among the greatest challenges facing the country. According to Biden, along with the, quote, sting of systemic racism and growing white supremacy, he said we must address the cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making. Joe Biden rattled off a litany of white America's sins. In Heather McDonald's description, he spoke of, quote, harsh, ugly reality of racism, nativism, fear, demonization, anger, resentment, hatred, and extremism, close quote. 
But no one's portraying that view of America as angry or bitter or scorched earth or brimstone or fiery rhetoric, right? No, they aren't. Biden can get away with it. Donald Trump cannot. You see, if you speak of real problems, drug abuse, faltering education opportunities, low unemployment opportunities, crime-ridden neighborhoods, you're fear-mongering, selling fear and fright. If you speak about invented problems, problems that don't really exist, just like the threats of violence against the inaugural itself, for example, or the tremendous racial divisions in America that have not improved for the past 400 years, according to Joe Biden, you're a peacemonger selling unity, tranquility, equity. Kind of like, I guess, getting a Nobel Peace Prize in your first year of office if you're Barack Obama, though you opened wars in Libya, supported a coup in Egypt, and oversaw caused a half a million person refugee crisis in Syria. But if you forged peace between Israel and major Arab states, including the Sudan, you and the Nobel Peace Prize will never be put in the same paragraph. It's how the world works. It's why you have to take down and put in the memory hole the 1776 Commission report. You can't have a government report floating around showing America from its founding and through its history as a good nation dedicated to freedom and equality, after all. Here's something from the introduction of the 1776 Commission report that the Biden administration evidently doesn't want you to read. Quote, the principles of the American founding can be learned by studying the abundant documents contained in the record. Read fully and carefully, they show how the American people have ever pursued freedom and justice, which are the political conditions for living well. To learn this history is to become a better person, a better citizen, and a better partner in the American experiment of self-government, close quote, can be learned by studying the documents in the record. Read carefully. We can know ourselves better, become better people and citizens. So, Big Brother Biden's administration to keep us in a state of fear and agitation and to exploit division, especially portraying conservatives as ignorant of the 400 years of failure, they simply remove the report so we can't read and can't learn. Party said that Oceana had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceana had been in alliance with Eurasia as short as time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case would soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all the records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the, pa the past, ran the party slogan controls this future, who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though of its nature alterable, never had been altered. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it in new speak. Doublethink. We must be reminded, reconstructed actually, to be seen as a people inheriting 400 years of a long veil of tears of racism. As usual, Heather MacDonald gets it all exactly right when she puts it this way, quote, this characterization of America's worsening racism is not just factually ungrounded. It is also a tasteless rhetorical move in an inaugural address. Reflexive invocations of systemic racism and white supremacy have become the Tourette's syndrome of left-wing professors and activists. 
They are au courant, shallow terms of the moment, lacking depth or weight. In fact, such terms are so overused today that it is easy to tune them out. But that would be a mistake. The systemic racism conceit means that every American institution is illegitimate and needs to be reconstructed. I would only add not just American institutions, but also Americans. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. There's so much. I'm not sure where to begin here. Shall we start with, I guess you'd call it the department. It's not the Department of Redundancy Department. It's the Department of Silliness, I suppose. So yesterday, Joe Biden, because it was day one, remember how much he was going to do on day one? He did a lot. So yesterday, President Biden signs an executive order mandating the wearing of masks by federal employees and on all federal property. And some of us were watching him announce it from behind the White House desk as he was talking about it with a mask on. And we were wondering, okay, I I suppose that... um, He can't mandate masks and not wear one. This is a vaccinated man, however, a twice vaccinated man wearing a mask in a room and in an office that has to have perforce the most exquisite testing regimen and safety regimens around him and it. But there he was in his mask, twice vaccinated, issuing a mask mandate. And then it was just kind of a curious thing to me when I saw Jen Psaki, the new press secretary yesterday, holding her first press conference on federal property as a federal employee not wearing a mask. And I said to this – I mentioned this to a friend of mine. I said, well, it's hard to hear them when you're talking. He said, well, the president does it. He said, we're either doing this or we're not, right? I mean this is a mandate that matters or it doesn't. And then last night – As part of the inaugural festivities, I suppose, Joe Biden takes a stroll around the Lincoln Memorial with his wife without a mask on. So he's now on federal property yet again and not wearing a mask. Now, I don't think I'm not a doctor, but my sense of everything I've read is. You don't really even need a mask outside, and I question the use of masks generally speaking, but if this is the mandate, okay. So Peter Ducey, the White House correspondent for Fox News, asks Jen Psaki today at her press briefing about this seeming contradiction. He said Joe Biden made a big point in his inauguration that we're not going to lead with the example of our power, but the power of our example. So can you explain to me why he wasn't wearing a mask last night, hours after signing a mask mandate on federal property by federal employees? And, Bill, the audio went something like this. Focused on on doing his job to get the work done for the American people. Go ahead. 
Why weren't President Biden and all members of the Biden family masked at all times on federal lands last night if he signed an executive order that mandates masks on federal lands at all times? At the inaugural... At the uh, memorial, yes. I, I think, Steve, he was celebrating uh, an evening uh, of a historic day in our country, and certainly he signed the mask mandate because it's a way to send a message to the American public about the importance of uh, wearing masks, how it can save tens of thousands of lives. We take a number of COVID precautions, as you know here, in terms of testing, social distancing, mask wearing ourselves, as, as we do every single day, but I don't know that I have more for you on it than that. He was celebrating an evening of a historic day is the answer. So if you don't have to wear the mask now. Now, Ducey had a follow up. Go ahead with that. But as uh, Joe Biden often talks about, uh, it is not just important the uh, example of power, but the power of our example. Was that a good example for people who are watching who might not pay attention uh, normally? Well, Steve, I think uh, the power of his example is also uh, the message he sends by sign signing 25 executive orders, including um, almost half of them related to COVID. Uh, the requirements the example that we're all is his signing of executive orders. Are you folks buying this? The, the question is a pretty good one in a sense. Most Americans, most Americans are probably not tuning in to watch Joe Biden sign executive orders. But if they're going to tune in and see the president, it's likely that they're going to tune in and see him at an event like he was at at the Lincoln Memorial last night. So, so Jen Psaki says the power of his example was the signing of executive orders. We're supposed to take this seriously, evidently. That's what you should take away. Not whether he wears a mask, not whether I wear a mask, but that he signed the executive orders. That's what matters. What did Hadley Arcus call these? Do you remember the, the great phrase? Rituals of empty exactitude. I love that. Rituals of empty exactitude. We will sign the executive order. We will mandate it. We will not apply it to ourselves. And there will be an exception to the order. Nowhere found in the executive order. I read it. If you are celebrating an evening of a historic day. Then we got to hear – well, actually, before that, we got to hear from Anthony Fauci. He was kept on. Old boss, I guess – How's the, what's the song from the new boss? Same as the old boss. Um, but we will be fooled again. That's the problem. Anthony Fauci said, said he now feels liberated to not have to do anything but let the science speak for itself. How many times last year do you remember him – talking about how he um, he didn't think the president was doing anything he wasn't suggesting. All, and now it's now Anthony Fauci tells us, no, it's it's a liberating feeling working for Joe Biden where the science speaks for itself. It's um, it's a, it's a funny thing how Fauci is so respected. Do you realize how many things he's been wrong about? I'll tell you when we come back a lot more wrong than most people. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Anthony Fauci said at the um, 
press briefing today that he feels liberated. He's an amazingly uh, good uh, political figure in that he, um, he, he knows how to play well uh, to the boss that he works for and uh, say the right things to the right boss. But at some point, I am hoping we do get over our genuflection before him. He's been wrong an awful lot. Just give me this one piece of audio. I have a lot more, but uh, this, this will be illustrative. Bottom line, we don't have to worry about this one, right? Well, I, you know, obviously you need to take it seriously and do the kinds of things that the CDC and the Department of Homeland Security are doing. But this is not a major threat for the people in the United States, and this is not something that the citizens of the United States right now should be worried about. Okie dokie. All right. Not a major threat, not something the United St- citizens of the United States should be worried about. If Donald Trump had said that, my goodness gracious. We have audio of him comparing the coronavirus to a bad flu. We have him using the bad model that was off by millions, talking about two million Americans dying. We have him saying masks don't work and masks aren't useful. We now have him as a big mask advocate. This is my perhaps favorite one because I didn't even catch it at the time. But sure enough, it's there. I didn't know this. Um, He at one point in the pandemic had said going on a cruise is just fine. Healthy citizens going on cruise lines is no problem. Someone didn't tell the cruise lines that. Now, there is one other piece of misreporting going on here, and that was CNN. I think Fox called it CNN's first piece of fake news of the new administration. What was that piece of fake news, the first piece of fake news from this administ- about the, under this administration? It was that Biden is starting from scratch on the distribution of vaccines. That's the headline at CNN. Biden administration starting from scratch on distribution of vaccines. Fauci did dispute that today from the podium. And indeed, do you want to know, as Joe Biden was asked today by a reporter, he was asked, you're bragging about or you're saying that you're going to be distributing 100 million doses in 100 days. That's a million doses a day. Um, isn't that kind of what we're already doing? And he said, when I suggested it, you said we couldn't do it, which no one said. Fauci said we are well on our way to getting there. Do you know how many doses per day we're doing right now? This, according to Bloomberg News, 912,497 doses per day. This is what we're doing. Getting us to a million doses a day is what we're already on track to doing. And I can guarantee you one big thing isn't because of all the strategy that was put in place yesterday. We've been doing almost a million doses a day for a couple weeks now. This is no big deal. A lot of this is going to be bells and whistles about nothing different. So the White House today and Joe Biden today released with all the pomp and circumstance they could the new national strategy for the COVID-19 response and pandemic preparedness. New national strategy. Remember, we were told we'd get one on day one. It's day two. That's forgivable, totally, obviously. Has seven goals. 
The first one is to restore trust with the American people. Well, you know what that's about. The second one is to mount a safe, effective, comprehensive vaccination campaign. We already discussed how it's basically completing what has already been started. Goal three is to mitigate spread through expanding masking, testing, treatment, data, workforce, and clear public health standards. Have we not been doing that? 80 to 90 percent of the American people mask. I don't know how much more masking you can do. By the way, I don't know that you can find me examples of where it has cut, curbed, or shortened the rise of cases. I give you California. My other favorite Fauci thing, just going into break, I have a whole list of things Fauci said that were wrong. My other favorite one was New York State was the model. What New York State was doing was the model for handling the coronavirus. It's the model if you want the highest death rate per capita. All right, 6025080960. I said this was going to be special, this administration. It's off to a special start. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 6025080960. Who was our guest yesterday? Maybe William Vogley. Maybe William Vogley, or perhaps it was Ben Dominich. I don't remember which. One of them said that you will see when it comes to the cultural issues that the Biden administration will pay its mo- most of its tribute to the left wing of the of the political of the Democratic Party. That will come mostly in the cultural issues. Economic issues may be a little more standard Democratic Party fare, maybe. But the cultural issues, watch out for those. And yesterday, indeed, it's not getting a lot of news. Some here and there, mostly from uh, civil rights organizations on the right and left. Let me quote you the Human Rights Campaign, a civil rights organization for the left, what they said. Yesterday, President Joe Biden issued the most substantive, wide-ranging LGBTQ executive order in U.S. history. Yes, it is. It is the most substantive, wide-ranging LGBTQ executive order in U.S. history. And it applies to children and schools and education and sports. As Ryan Anderson puts it, boys who identify as girls must be allowed to compete in girls' athletic competitions. Men who identify as women must be allowed in women-only spaces. Healthcare plans must pay for gender transition procedures. And doctors and hospitals must perform them. It spells the end of girls' and women's sports as we know them. I've often spoken of the theoretical and the actual. Dennis Prager's Prager University dealt with this as a theoretical in November. And because warnings weren't heeded, lessons weren't learned, we now have the actual. Will you play this Prager U, please? I've been training to be a championship sprinter since I was eight years old. With the help of my parents, my coaches, and my teammates, I did it. By sophomore year of high school in 2018, I was one of the top five female high school sprinters in Connecticut. But then, one day, I wasn't. 
At the state championships that year, two people passed me, passed all of us girls, literally. They finished first and second in our races, dominating the field. Were they more motivated? Did they train harder? I don't think so. But they did have an edge, a big one we couldn't match. They were biological boys who said they were transgender girls. Do you think that's fair? Males competing against females? Before you make up your mind, let me tell you a bit about what it took for me to become a top female sprinter. It meant training with my team every day after school for at least two hours, working to shave fractions of a second off of my time in the 100 and 200 meter dash. It meant not hanging out after school or going out with friends on the weekends. It meant getting up early every Saturday morning and competing all day at a meet. It meant not indulging in any of the things that might cost me my dream. And here's the thing about the two biological males that took the top two girls' medals in the state of Connecticut. Their times were not even good enough to qualify them to compete in the state championships on the boys' team. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Their times were not good enough to qualify them for the boys' state championships. But two years in a row, they won first and second place competing against the girls. All in all, these two biological males won 15 women's state championship titles. Some in the media have accused me of being a sore loser. They tell me to run harder. But the biological changes that males go through during puberty are so significant, they gain an insurmountable advantage in strength and in speed. That's why boys always competed against boys and girls against girls. U.S. runner Allison Felix is an inspiration to me. She's the fastest female sprinter in the world. Her lifetime best for the 400 meters is 49.26 seconds. But based on 2018 data, nearly 300 high school boys in the U.S. alone could beat that record. What we are talking about then is not just boys taking women's trophies, though they are. And we aren't talking about biological boys taking women's athletic scholarships, though they'll do that too. When biological boys are allowed to compete against girls in sports like track, where the differences in performance are so great, we are talking about girls getting shut out, never getting the chance to win or even compete at all. When two biological boys took the first and second place spots against me in the 2019 Indoor State Championship, I lost the opportunity to participate at the New England Championships. I lost the chance to be scouted by top coaches. Possibly even to win scholarships. Right now, biological boys are being allowed to set records on the girls' team, deleting girls' records, erasing the achievements of actual girls, and setting a standard probably no girl can meet, no matter how much she trains or how hard she tries. The reason that we have girl sports in the first place is to give female athletes with talent, hard work, and dedication an equal opportunity to shine and be recognized. But girls will never have that opportunity if they are forced to compete with biological boys in sports like track and field, softball, volleyball, or basketball. Women fought too hard for too long so girls like me can have the opportunity to compete on a level playing field. Maybe worst of all, when girls try to object, we may point out the truth that biological differences in strength and speed between boys and girls are massive and real. We're called bigots. Administrators, Teachers, coaches, and other students tell us to just keep quiet and take it. We are told a girl's place is to be seen and not heard. Well, 
we won't be silenced. We are fighting back. With two other top female runners in Connecticut, I have filed a federal lawsuit under Title IX to protect the rights of women and girls to a fair competition on a level playing field. Please don't turn your backs on us, America. This isn't about gender identity. It's about fair play. I'm Selena Soul for Prager University. Your heart kind of breaks for her. Your heart kind of breaks for all these female athlete students. And this is, um, I don't know what phase of feminism we're supposed to be in now, but it's clearly over. The phases of feminism where we were supposed to elevate and give equitable and equal, short, and equal chances to women in, in college and high school athletics is now over. It's over because we're now giving preference to students who identify as transgender, which will overrule and override what women do. What's the point of women's sports at all if men can compete in them? At all. What's the point? This is the new equity. It's the new equity. And it's, um, it's going to be special. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Donna is in Phoenix. Hi, Donna. Hi, Seth. Boy, I'm thrilled. I pulled over in my car to call. Oh, aren't you nice? <laughs> well, I try to listen to you as much as possible, uh, driving back and forth to work. I called the other day, and you were, were busy. Oh, okay. But I have a burning question. Yes. Why do we allow socialists to run for office in our country when, in my mind, it doesn't fit in with our documents? I don't understand. You, um, Donna, you're putting your finger on a hugely important debate about the First Amendment that takes place mostly in academic circles these days because – the Supreme Court over the years has banished, as Eugene Debs was the test case, he ran as a socialist for president something like five times, I think, as the Supreme Court has um, barred loyalty tests and that sort of thing, and it has opened up an area of, of, of the First Amendment that doesn't look at the ends, the political ends at which political speech is aimed. In other words, you can advocate in this country under First Amendment jurisprudence, you can advocate for Marxism. You can advocate for National Socialism. This is a debate that goes back probably most famously to what was known as the um, Skokie case, 1976-77 in Skokie, Illinois. happened before that, but that's where it became most prominent. When a lot of conservative scholars were looking at the history of the First Amendment and saying, are we certain Are we certain that the First Amendment should actually allow and tolerate speech that could um, overthrow this country and government and constitution? The constitution is not neutral as to the form of government it tells us it is there for. It guarantees in section – in uh, uh, article – it guarantees – a Republican form of government. If it guarantees a Republican form of government, is the First Amendment 
a suicide pact that can allow and should allow that would put it asunder. The Supreme Court has answered yes. The only meaning of free speech, Brandeis said, is that it works its way into the marketplace of ideas and if chosen shall have its way. Well, there are some scholars who disagree with that. You're one of them. Hadley Arcus is one of them. Walter Burns is one of them. Harry Jaff is one of them. It's a minority of a viewpoint in academic circles. It's one I share with you, but it's not the jurisprudence we live under today. This is why I was questioning why we could even allow and tolerate the kinds of permits that took place in um, in Charlottesville. I don't even understand why they had a right to march in the first place back in 17. We'll be right back. <laughs> 